Welcome to Government Enabled, a podcast created to explore some of the biggest workforce challenges faced by federal and state agencies today. In each episode, we'll feature insights from industry experts who are helping the government improve their workforce operations and make better data-driven decisions. Join us as we explore federal subject matter expertise and innovative technology in supporting the mission of government agencies. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to an episode of Government Enabled Podcast. I'm your host, Cheryl Mitchell. Today, we're happy to welcome David Mank to the show. David is Professor Emeritus from Indiana University. Thanks for joining today. Doing very well, Cheryl. Happy to join you for the podcast today. To give our audience some background about yourself, could you please highlight some of your past experience and what your day-to-day project work is like right now? Sure. I retired from Indiana University a few years ago, having been the director of the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community at Indiana University, where we did research and development projects on disability issues across the lifespan from early childhood, schools, transition, employment, community living, and aging as well. Prior to that, I was at the University of Oregon for a number of years. And one of the things that we did while I was at Oregon was we started the first freestanding supported employment program in Oregon. It was called McKinsey Personnel Systems. And it was was unique. And we started with 12 individuals that had been in an activity program. And it has since grown to serving well over 100 people. And when we incorporated it, it was two women that each had a daughter with a disability and myself as the original incorporators of McKinsey. And I actually just looked up its website a couple of days ago to see how they were doing and notice that they said they now serve more than 100 people. That's wonderful. It's great that the program's still going. For our listeners, given your background with working with state agencies and service providers and individuals with disabilities, how will employment change post-COVID? Well, that's a really interesting question because my conversations with people around the country these days, new best practices are emerging. If we're not going to be seeing people face-to-face or haven't in the last 10 months or so, we've learned a lot about virtual supports using Zoom and our smartphones as our primary methods of touching people at this point in time. And I think employment agencies have been learning that a lot of what they've been doing in person doesn't need to be done in person. It can be done virtually. And I think the question for us going forward is a really interesting one. And that is, what will be the new mix of ways that we both develop jobs for people with disabilities and how do we support that employment going forward? And we're going to be really intentional about that mix of methodologies in the future. I think it would be a mistake to simply snap back to 2019 and do things the way we did then. You know, we're learning not only about virtual supports. In employment agencies now, they've had to rethink their financing. They've had to rethink how they staff their work and how they support staff differently now. And those practices will need to be intentional in the future as well, in a mix of the new best practices, as well as the things that we knew how to do before. Another thing that's emerged that I think we should pay attention to with the technology is the pandemic exposed the need for people with disabilities to have more access to technology and specifically smartphones. So first is access, but also support on fluency. The pandemic has also shown that in some instances, at least, agencies discovered that their staff didn't necessarily have the technology and the smartphones that they needed and needed some support to become fluent in it themselves. So I think not only our phones, but other technologies as well will be a bigger part of how we do our work in the future. 
So I think that would be the primary changes. One last change that I would expect is a different kind of conversation about job development and the mm-hmm. process about essential jobs. A lot of people with disabilities have lost their jobs or been furloughed, but there are many people that with disabilities that are still working because they were in essential jobs, in grocery stores and other businesses that remained open because they were needed. I agree. And on a side note, EconSys just hosted a monthly COP webinar that took place last Wednesday, where we highlighted Karen Lee, who is another subject matter expert who also runs a provider organization in Silver Spring. And she had highlighted one of her clients who had to, his job responsibilities did shift. He worked at NIH and then he ended up working remote and they touched on the whole use of technology and being able to acclimate him to the adjustment. And so it was really interesting and it was really, what you're saying is it's definitely in timing with the COP webinar that we just hosted. And it will be really interesting to see how this whole issue of job development will evolve in 2020, in 2021, given what we experienced in 2020. 20. So it, like I said, a lot of your points are very interesting and I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in the field and how things are going to evolve. And especially with people with disabilities, the jobs and what other jobs will they be able to get and obtain moving forward? Yeah, I agree. I think the entire workforce will look different in two years. Mm-hmm. We just need to make sure that we understand that in the interest of people with disabilities as well. How can public and private sector partners to expand the employment opportunities for people with disabilities? One of the most important things will be personnel development. Employment of people with disabilities works when we have really talented people at the community level that have relationships with the business community in their towns, large or small, and have the skills and the comfort to interact comfortably with the private sector. So I think a continuous investment in the skills of employment specialists and staff will continue to be important. Another lesson that we've learned in this pandemic is that training and technical assistance will look different in the future because we've had to do things virtually. There now is much, much more information available online than ever before because training has gone virtual as well. I know in one stage, shortly after the pandemic began, they switched their training, of course, to a webinar format and discovered that they could reach hundreds of people in a week's time that they weren't reaching when they were doing face-to-face training. For example, a state conference on employment that typically would draw seven or 800 people, which would be the capacity of the venue, would take place every year. This year, they did it virtually and had more than 10,000 people participate. Now, think about that. That's what, amazing. That's incredible. What, that, what does that tell us? It tells us there's an audience for this information, number one. And number two, more people could participate because they didn't have to have a travel budget to get there. So if I run an employment agency and I want to send people to that conference, I have to look at my budget and decide how many people can I send. With it happening virtually, you could take the newest staff member that you probably wouldn't send to a conference and have them start to learn about the best practices in the field from day one. So I think training will look quite different and we'll have to rethink how we go about personnel development and support of staff that do the work of employment of people with disabilities every day. 
I agree. And also the benefit too of it being virtual is that they can access those presentations. They can access them online. So even if, you know, when you're in person attending these conferences, you can't be everywhere. And now there's a repository of the presentations. There's now recordings. So like you said, it's a win-win for everyone now that we've moved a lot of the training to virtual. To address future workforce recruitment needs, what do you recommend as next steps from the employer perspective? Well, I think employers expect us to be professional in how we do our work with them. And I think the field has moved toward more of a professional status. Increasingly across the country, states are expecting that people that do this work will have some kind of credential. Most typically, it's been what's called the ACRE credential or what the organization called APSI offers, a certificate of employment for employment support personnel. And to professionalize it means that we recognize what practices are and that we expect people to participate in training in order to do that and to have the professional skills and knowledge in order to do it. There's an organization in the Northeast that has been providing this kind of training for a number of years now. And they're right now looking at their data of what skills and knowledge do people gain from this training. And now they're doing follow-up, a follow-up study to find out what skills do people actually put into use after they've participated in the training. So it becomes much more competency-oriented rather going beyond simply going to training and taking a test. What's going to be even more interesting is that they've been doing this virtually for the last year and we'll be collecting the same data. And this will be, I think, one of the first or maybe the first opportunity to look at a skill development before the pandemic and now to be able able to look at it during and after the pandemic. And to what extent is the virtual training as effective? Well, we need to remix uh, virtual versus in-person training. And when will that information be out? Because that's going to be really interesting to see. Well, they've already looked at their data and are starting to write up the information pre-pandemic. And they're right now in the process of looking at their pre-post training data, and they will be collecting the follow-up data in the weeks and months ahead. So I would expect some initial information to be available within the next six months. Okay. I know we've talked about the employer perspective, but I'm curious about the HR departments. How can they become more involved in hiring people with disabilities? Well, I think we start a new conversation. When we start talking with HR departments now and in the months ahead to ask the question about the presence of employers with disabilities in their workforce during the pandemic. And they noticed that there were, in fact, a number of people with disabilities in essential jobs. Because, you know, I know just a few of the employers that I've talked to, you know, they were on it in a second about who are our essential workers and Mm -hmm. realizing we need these people to show up. How do we need to support our employees who are essential workers to make sure that they're safe, to make sure they have transportation to get to us, and to make sure that they're going to be here because if we want to operate our business, we need these essential workers. So, well, hopefully in two years, we're not only having the essential workers in place, but nonetheless, making sure that HR departments understand that that every employee needs supports. People with disabilities just, we have to ask the questions more carefully about the supports that they will need to be successful. But I think HR departments will be at least as receptive as they've always been, which has been quite, I think, quite receptive, perhaps even more so going forward because of the things that all of us have had to learn about the workforce. That will also raise the question about employees that can work from home or virtually at least part of the time. 
And what does that look like for people with disabilities as well as the rest of their employees? I suspect we're not going back to five days a week, nine to five in the office all of the time. I'm sure there will be um, significant in-person presence in offices in the future, but I think there will be a new mix uh, virtually versus working out of a collective office. I agree. How can the disability community help employers? We represent people with disabilities one person at a time. You know, I've said for years, I would never ask as the first question of an employer, would you hire a person with disabilities? I would introduce them to a person that I know has an interest in their business and in the type of work that they do so that they're not hiring this notion of a person with a disability. They're hiring someone that has an interest, has Mm -hmm. their own talents, and can be a productive member of their workforce and who may have a disability and some accommodation or some unique kinds of supports may be important for them to be successful in that workplace. But I would stick with that approach. Uh, I'm introducing you to people that are interested, that have their own talents, and that they have a disability is one thing. The more important part is their interest and abilities to contribute. I agree. What do you recommend to state agencies who are struggling to improve employment outcomes? How can we change the narrative? Well, we have an opportunity to change the narrative in a way that we never anticipated because of the pandemic. I think states, just as employment agencies are doing right now, would do well to ask the question of what are best practices in government that are emerging because of the pandemic. I think about how so many states have become much more flexible in what they would fund. It was unthinkable two years ago to fund the level of virtual supports that have been funded in the last 10 months. Some states, more so than others, are now funding virtual supports. But also, as I said, with employment agencies, don't snap back two years, but instead create a new intentional mix of flexibility in service definitions, in purchasing of technology, in how things are funded, in creating more incentives for employment in the future with new ways of doing business. So I think states have to relearn, as all of us do, what this means for the future, to rethink how they develop policy that can be even more successful than it has been in the past and continue to realize that this will always take an investment, that it simply isn't a matter of stating a new policy and expecting it to happen. David, in terms of from the federal agency perspective, do you have some guidance on where they should proceed with improving employment outcomes and working with the states in light of everything that's transpired in 2020? Indeed. As with the state governments, I think the federal government understands that this calls for an investment with states in order for states to work more directly with community agencies. And we've seen investments out of labor, education, sometimes social security as well. So we know that federal agencies recognize that employment is the likely destination for the vast majority of people with disabilities in their adulthood to the same extent that we would expect that from anyone in our communities. So first of all, extending that investment going forward, and I know there is interest at the federal level in multiple agencies across the government. Number two, I think it's important to start with young people coming out of school. If people go directly into employment or knowing that we would expect the vast majority of young people coming out of school to be interested in employment, to never to go home first or not to go to a segregated setting first, but to go directly to employment. And then in 10 or 15 years, we have a completely new system where young people are always both expected and interested in jobs in the community. Following that, I think it's important to ask all of the people that are in congregate settings now where they would like to be working 
in the next year or two. The data suggests that as many as two-thirds of the people, when asked, that are in congregate settings indicate an interest in competitive integrated employment. You know, uh, while I was still at Indiana University, we conducted a study where we interviewed 200 people in sheltered workshops in Indiana. And we developed a questionnaire for these interviews that gently asked about the employment that people had now in sheltered workshops, and then ended with a question about what kind of job are you interested in the future? And two-thirds of people indicated an interest in community-integrated employment, which tells us the size of the immediate task. There's a decade of work right there, I would suggest, in getting just that number of people into the job that they would choose that's matched to their interest and their talents. And what's interesting about that two-thirds of the individuals, if I could tell a story about an organization that is in the state of Washington, it's called uh, Morningside. Some years ago, they had been in the process of transforming that agency from uh, sheltered work to community employment. And for, oh, probably six, eight or more years, they just quietly, one person at a time, transitioned individuals from sheltered workshop into a job of their own in the community. And there was a moment when there were only about 60 people left in the sheltered workshop. And that's when an argument began, something of a debate about should they keep the workshop or not? What about the people? that were still there. Some people saying, well, a lot of people still like it here. And others saying, you know, we went from whatever it was, 180 or 200 people, and now we're at 60. You know, we have all of this building space. Maybe we should rethink that. So as that debate continued, finally, the idea emerged of why don't we ask people? Why don't we ask the 60 remaining people? Exactly. And in that situation, again, at first asked, two-thirds of the individuals said they wanted to go. And I remember this story because I was personally involved in that conversation, in that debate, and was in the room of the conversation turned to, why don't we ask everybody? And that story is also recounted on their website as a part of their history in their transformation to competitive integrated employment. And the fourth thing that I would suggest at the federal level is that we reconsider the Transformation to Community Competitive Employment Act. This is a piece of legislation that was initially proposed, I think, two years ago. Mm -hmm. There is effort underway even right now to rewrite parts of that and to see about getting that introduced in the next legislative session. And I know there's a lot of, there was a lot of excitement a couple of years ago as that particular piece of legislation legislation was being put together. I know that advocates at the federal level have been active in the conversation with legislators about the possibility for the future. And I think that will get a lot of support at the federal level and from advocates all across the country in virtually every state. With that said, what is needed at the local community level to improve the disability outcomes? First, I think we need the answer to a question. And that question is, with the uncertainties in funding, because a lot of people couldn't go to work, what is the status of these organizations right now? How stable are they financially and from a staffing standpoint because of the pandemic? I suspect that there's been some organizations that have struggled quite a bit financially. And I think we first need to understand the infrastructure of our agencies that provide these employment services and get these employment outcomes and work toward their health. 
as organizations financially and organizationally and from a human resource standpoint, because these are the absolutely critical organizations that make this happen, that help people get employed. And if they're not healthy going forward, then we're going to have difficulty. So first is to get the answer to the question, how healthy are these organizations and what assistance will they need in order to be as robust and successful as possible? Part of that may be financial support. Part of that may be technical assistance at the organizational level to rethink best practices and to implement those best practices. And in part, it will be a personnel development issue to make sure that they can find and hire and train and support the staff to do this work every day. Okay. So we're getting close to our time. So let's close up with a few questions to give our audience some tips. Let's start with your favorite resources. Do you have any favorite online resources that you rely on upon to keep the speed of what's happening with the government, like technology or HR or any other key industry topic? Uh, well, you know, specific around disabilities, I think, you know, the organization APSI, the Associations for People Supporting Employment First, is a great resource because it has information from virtually every state in the country. I know a number of states also, as they've taken their training online, have created catalogs of online learning that you can get access to virtually because they've been recorded. I know the Washington Initiative for Supported Employment has great online resources. I know an organization in Philadelphia called Networks for Training and Development has a lot of online resources. I know in many states through the University Centers on Disabilities, I have developed new resources specifically to employment. So I think inquiring with the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, because they're a portal into every state as well, can help us with resources. On the business side, there are two magazines that I have always consulted for new information and innovation. One of them is called Fast Company. And it's a really interesting read of innovations across all types of industries. And a second is a magazine called Wired, which is a lot about technology in the workforce and in all kinds of industries as well. And lastly, where can our audience go and learn more about you, Dr. Mink? Send me an email. I don't have... I don't have a website. I still do quite a bit of consulting work around the country, consulting under the umbrella of Bank & Associates, which is simply a doing business as moniker, but I'm easy to find on the internet, 53 at gmail.com. And I've enjoyed and continue to enjoy working with colleagues across the country and in several other countries even now. So thanks for that question, Cheryl. And also, if you'd like, we can always provide your other email address, which is dmank at indiana.edu, if they want to reach you there as well. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on Government Enabled. We really appreciate your insight. And thanks again. Okay. Thank you, Cheryl. Government Enabled is brought to you by EconSys, an organization that helps power federal and state governments with exceptional workforces. If you're a public sector leader looking to get the most out of your people, then subscribe to the Government Enabled Podcast on all major platforms. And check out all archived episodes at econsys.com. Thanks for listening.